Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Gowan. Uh, today, I am delighted to be sitting down with Rebecca Copeland, who is a professor of Japanese language and literature here at Washington University in St. Louis. And we're also accompanied by Laura Miller, uh, endowed professor of Japanese studies and professor of history at the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. <laughs> So the reason that um, we invited you in today is to talk about your co-edited volume, was published earlier this year, um, with a title that I think is pretty fabulous. It's called Diva Nation, Female Icons from Japanese Cultural History. And this book has a great title. It also has a great opening line. It says, we did not go searching for her, this diva from Japan. She was already there. And I just love that line. Um, can you elaborate um, where and how did you find this diva from Japan? I think the, the divas that we included or considered, they were never hidden or obscure or anything. So finding them was easy. And there are other divas that we could have included. So the choice of who we included depended on the contributors and what their particular interests were. But mainly, uh, these were figures that lodged in our consciousness because of uh, something about them and something about the standard depictions of them that we thought fell short. So, uh, for example, one of the contributors, Carolyn Stevens, uh, has a book that just came out on the Beatles in Japan. And, of course, she had to talk about Yoko Ono, but she wanted to look at Yoko Ono not as the woman who wrecked the Beatles, <laughs> but uh, as an artist in her own right. And so in my case, I got interested in the third century uh, shaman ruler named Himiko uh, through some other research. And, um, it, and, and, and in that, the course of that research, she kept popping up. So I couldn't avoid her. What happened was uh, I'm actually trained as an anthropologist, and I was doing research on the uh, tarot cards in Japan and the people who read tarot cards. And I found a place where a specialist was offering tarot readings using a special French deck. And so she advertised that she had met a, and trained with a French master. So I thought, oh, I have to go interview her. So I went to her place of business, which was in a kind of sketchy building in Shibuya in Tokyo. And she met me at the door. And she was accompanied by her office mate, who was a woman clothed in these white robe, who said she channeled Himiko and was uh, pulling on the original divination used by Japanese women. And, and so I was just so enchanted by this. And I thought, why is a contemporary, you know, businesswoman in the divination industry, you know, wanting to, to tie this ancient sovereign to her business? So I thought that was really interesting. And, and then I kept finding and stumbling across other women in the divination industry who were also using Himiko as some sort of tie-in or link. So I got interested in this figure because of these contemporary kind of eruptions of her. So I think when we tell people that what we are what we have worked on or what you know the book that we wrote about uh, divination, they they immediately assume they, something about diva, right? They think, oh, well, you must mean an opera star 
Or maybe they think, oh, you must mean a nasty television personality. And um, there are those kinds of people in Japan. I think we could have selected uh, amazing opera stars and turned them into the subject of our book or TV personalities. But that's that's not really what we were going after with the idea of um, diva. We were more interested in unruly, insistent women or, or female-identified individuals because not all of our diva are um, biological females. So we were interested in these naughty women who who inhabit Japanese history and myth, but are often overlooked, um, or just a side note in Japanese um, mainstream historical accounts. And so we were wondering, like, well, why why aren't they the story instead of just the side note? And so I think a lot of our chapters are recovering. I guess recovering isn't the right word because they were never hidden, but pulling into the spotlight. These incredible, um, unruly, insistent, um, daring characters from Japanese myth and history. I'm glad you brought that up because I did think that was interesting, just that the word diva carries such weight and I feel like means a lot of different things to different people. In addition to their unruliness, is there anything that sort of brings these divas together? Well, I think the a lot of them question Japanese social stereotypes or just stereotypes in general about what a woman is allowed to do. And many of the individuals that we were dealing with are women who crossed borders, who, who transgressed, and um, were either reviled for it or celebrated. And that's what drew them to us or, or how they entered our lives, I guess, is because they were crossing so many borders. So the um, the diva that you focused on in the book is Izanami, a goddess. Um, yes, can you tell us about her? Oh, yeah. Well, um, well she is the founding goddess of um, Japan. She, she and her male uh, partner were the, um, the creators of the Japanese archipelago and the Japanese world. I guess you could kind of compare her to Eve, so the Japanese Eve. And um, they gave birth to all of the nature and rocks and sea and everything in, um, that created the Japanese world. But Izanami died giving birth to fire. She was mortally wounded, and so she was. Um, she ended up in the underworld, and her male partner was distraught by her absence and um, in a fit of desire chased after her only to discover her decaying corpse and was disgusted by that, and of course he fled. And right before he went and, and found her, she had said, you know, don't look in my room. So, of course, what does he do? He goes and he looks and he sees her rotting corpse and he runs away. And then he throws this huge boulder because he was a god that sealed her in her place in this underworld. And um, after he seals her in her place, she says, you know, how dare you? You have... You have um, broken your troth to me and you've looked when I told you not to, so I am going to kill a thousand people in your world every day. And he said, okay, then I'm going to build a 1,500 birthing huts every day. And so that tells us how uh, life and death was created and so forth. And that's really where the, the myths stop. We're left with Izanami in the dark cave, and that's the end of her story. So the, the Jap contemporary Japanese author, Akiri no Natsuo, comes and sort of picks up where that story left off. What's Izanami thinking? Um, how, is, how is she 
operating in her day-to-day, <laughs> killing all these thousand people. And so the story that Kirino Natsuo tells is what happens next. And in that story, Izanami is rightfully outraged, but she is taking her duties of killing very seriously and um, uh, acquitting herself with great dignity and divahood. So that that was um, my contribution. That's an interesting take, because I feel like just hearing the story itself, it almost seems like you know, this this goddess is locked away. You know, mm-hmm. she's she's stripped of her power, seemingly so. And so showing how that potentially was not true is an interesting take on how to tell a diva's story. Yeah, well, Kirino, Kirino the, the author, Kirino Natsuo, is a, is a living author. She's a contemporary author who is known for her darkly disturbing sort of psychological studies of human nature, of Japanese um, society, and particularly focuses on the inequity of the gender structure in Japanese society. So she was really interested in, you know, why is it that women are the ones who are tied to biological function? Why are the female of uh, the species the ones who are always marked as defiled? And so she's she's really interrogating that question in this novel that my chapter is based on and showing that this is a complete construction, right? It's a social construction. And Izanami in her dark layer is interestingly shining a light on the myth of female defilement. So, um, so in that sense, both she and her author are very much divas. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Another diva uh, discussed in the book and in your chapter, Dr. Miller, um, is an actual historical figure, if I understand correctly, though there might be some mythical components. Um, So it's a Queen Himiko. So you talked about how you found her, but can you tell us a bit of her story? Sure. Um, She's she's only mentioned briefly in Chinese history. So the Chinese court was interested in in the outlying countries and uh, cultures around them and sent, you know, ethno historians around to look at the neighboring peoples, and uh, they described a, a, a state in Japan, what is now Japan, and they were really surprised to find that it was ruled by a woman named Himiko, and uh, so she's actually interesting for a number of reasons. She's the first Japanese person whose name is in any recorded history. Mm-hmm. So that was that's something to keep in mind. And they described her as the uh, paramount chief of a confederation of small chiefdoms. And so she ruled for a long time, from the time she was a young woman to when she died, uh, from 190 Common Era to 248. And she never married. And they thought that was interesting. Uh, but they also commented that she ruled by means of magic, that she was a kind of shaman priestess and that she used magic in her rulership. And that when she died, she was buried in this lavish uh, earth tomb, a huge earth tomb. And, um, and so these kind of tantalizing details have really created a lot of debate and speculation among Japanese historians for centuries, especially the location of her realm, which was called Yamatai. And I I think today, currently, scholars are um, coming around to the idea that that she is buried in 
uh, Sakurai City, which is in um, Nara Prefecture, in a tomb called Hashihaka Kofun, or Chopsticks Tomb. So the, she's an interesting figure for all of these reasons, but what, what I found was that contemporary people are having a lot of fun using her image for all sorts of reasons. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. You, you mentioned the tarot card reader um, channeling Himiko, but you found all sorts of other contemporary instances where she's brought up in unexpected ways. What, what were some of the places that you found her? Um, she's really commodified and um, exploited in some of these local towns in Nara uh, and in Shiga Prefecture uh, to, for the townspeople to kind of claim some kind of ancient continuity or, you know, some real Japanese-ness. And so they use her as a mascot. Um, the city of T Sakurai, where the tomb is, created a very cute manga-like mascot named Himiko-chan. And so Himiko-chan is on all sorts of goods and on official posters and so on. Uh, these towns have created uh, Himiko-themed beauty contests, um, and other kind of touristic things. So she's she's just really accessible as a symbol of, you know, ancient Japan that uh, people are exploiting right now. Do you think that reveals anything about Japanese culture today? I mean, the story you told at the beginning, she seems this, this powerful, mystical being. And then she's transformed into this mascot that's kind of cute, you know, not necessarily a negative image, but also maybe not what you would expect. I would say that the different representations or uses or interpretations of Himiko really vary greatly um, around Japan and in different media. And it depends on the um, creator or the user's purpose. And um, so, as you mentioned, a lot of it is ignoring or not really wanting to deal with her status as a, uh, an authority figure and instead using her as simply a cute figure from the past. So it depends on the context, but uh, she, she allows that. I mean, her divahood means that she can be used in all sorts of ways. So that's kind of the second half of our title, Nation. And um, all of these uh, divas um, tell us about Japanese national identity or how the Japan positions itself as a society, as a nation. And so you have Himiko as the, and, and Izanami as well, as sort of the foundational uh, forces behind the development of the Japanese nation, but they also represent sort of the anxieties of, of the nation as well and the commodification and, again, that anxiety about change of national identity and, and gender <laughs> in that identity. So every diva that we deal with has also uh, something to tell us about Jap Japan as a world order. Yeah, I, th I would say that all of the divas in the volume are problematic in some way because, as Rebecca mentioned, they don't conform very well to expected gender roles. And historians either downplay that or ignore it. Uh, so they must mention these divas. They're, all these divas are integral to any historical um, overview of um, Japanese society or music, popular culture, you find these women. So the writers 
when they find these problematic aspects of the diva, they just underplay them. And that's what drew us to them also, is we wanted to expand and explore what these problematic aspects of the divas. Were there any parts of these stories or perhaps a, a certain character um, either in the chapters you worked on or the, the pieces that you read from other contributors that, that really stood out or really surprised you? Well, I guess um, I think probably Laura has already mentioned this in a, in a way, but the fact that um, there's such continuity, um, regardless of how old the, the diva is or whenever the diva appeared in um, history, we still see them and they still keep coming up. Um, there's one diva that was um, Uzume, Amaino Ama Uzume, who did a kind of erotic dance in front of a, a cave to lure the sun goddess out. So this was another mythic story. Um, but that kind of power and eroticism and the way that um, it has been used over time to to disrupt is something that continues throughout Japanese history or any history, I suppose. And so at the, up into the modern period, the very contemporary period, we have the vagina artist who has also exposed herself to a pub public scrutiny to be disruptive and has um, met with a a, a different kind of reception, I guess. But this, the, there's just so much continuity. So everything changes, but everything stays the same in a lot of our stories. I was impressed by, uh, not surprised necessarily, but impressed by how all the contributors were able to, you know, really um, pull out details and were so meticulous in their research and explore ideas that were often just left out of the, the story. So, um, for example, our colleague Jan Bardsley wrote a chapter on Iko, a beauty expert who I didn't know before her chapter was actually involved in the tourism, tourism industry to Korea because of her own personal background. And so, you know, somebody who went way below the surface to find out more about these divas. I think that, that was the nice part about the project. So we found that all of these divas sort of shared the, a similar sense of um, of discovery, of, of uh, as I've said earlier, crossing borders, but also of having been wounded. You know, they've all been somehow troubled by society, a society that has rejected them or um, despised them. I mean, Yoko Ono has had confronted all kinds of rejection um, on both sides of, of the Pacific. And that, that's just very typical of the divas that we encountered. And so it's somehow through their their suffering that they emerge as these very dynamic and um, daring figures. <laughs> as your uh, examinations of these historical divas perhaps made you think differently about female icons today or um, sort of contemporary figures of divahood? Um, I think not, not so much that, but I think looking at um, divas from history and how people today are reclaiming them in various ways and using their representations in various ways really was interesting to see how there's just this range of responses and interpretations, and especially how artists, manga artists, people in literature, film, uh, exploit the divas from history for all sorts of purposes. And um, so that, for me, that was you know one way that I, I think attention to divas changes how we think about 
female roles. Yeah, we look at the past and we think, oh, well, they had it so bad. <laughs> you know, it was so difficult. There was so much they had to resist and overcome. And in that sense, it was easy for them to be divas. <laughs> Whereas nowadays, where the things are much more open, how do we do the same things that these divas of the past did? How do we perform on the edge the way that they did? And I think what we discovered is that there's, there's the potential for divahood in all of us. And that uh, regardless of how wide we may think the system is, somebody is being restricted somewhere. And there's a role for us to all play in trying to make the, the playing field more open and even and so forth. That's a great point and a great takeaway. So um, obviously we hope everyone who listens to this runs out and buys a copy of Diva Nation. But if people instead are inspired to perhaps go to Google. Um, (laughs) Is there any one figure or story that you think people should look up first? Obviously, I'd say Himiko. (laughs) But, you know, Himiko is a good place to start, right? Definitely. But the thing is, once you start, so if we start with Himiko, for example, if we say Himiko is the essential, if you start with her, though, um, she'll lead you to the next one. Mm -hmm. So it's like the potato chip. You can't just (laughs) find. That's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) To all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you to Dr. Copeland, Dr. Miller for joining us today. Their co-edited book, once again, is Diva Nation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was fun.